If you're innovating, creating, or making a difference, this show is for you. Welcome to Over Coffee. I'm Dot Cannon. Here on Over Coffee, we talk with artists and innovators about the process of changing the world in terms of what they do. One way I try to introduce this to students is I always ask, how many of you have done a science experiment before? Oh, you see all these hands go up. And I tell them, guys, I'm going to say that you've never done a science experiment. The science that we're doing, we have no idea what's going to happen at the end. And for STEAM teacher Steve Jones, that is where the fun comes in. Steve, who teaches at Hopewell Middle School in Milton, Georgia, isn't talking about just any science experiments. He is referencing what's happening aboard the International Space Station right now. That's because Steve is both a NASA Solar System Ambassador and a freelance principal investigator for experiential STEM learning organization, Magnitude.io. In late February, Steve and his students saw a class-related project blast off to the International Space Station, and they're currently tracking what's going on next. Steve, before we get to talking about what you're currently doing as the space teacher, how Mm -hmm. did space and space travel first capture your imagination is what you really wanted to do. Wow. I was a little kid. I mean, it seems like I've always been fascinated with the space program. I know my grandmother was always, you know, she always kept a lot of things. And she would tell me stories of, you know, when Kennedy was assassinated and she had all this different stuff and she would share pictures of when the moon landing was. And so I remember that a lot. And I just loved it as a kid. One of my big personal heroes as far as wanting to become a scientist and do science was Peter Parker with Spider-Man. Yes. I would read the Spider-Man comics and be like, this guy's in high school. He's creating all this cool stuff. He figured out how to do web shooters and do the web fluid. And that's so cool. I'd love to have a chemistry kit or do something like that. And space always just fascinated me. I've got somewhere around here, I still have a copy of my Young Astronauts Club certificate. My mother kept it that I had joined. And I was basically glued to every shuttle launch that was on TV. I remember distinctly where I was when the shuttle Challenger disaster happened. Of course, you know, the 30th anniversary of that just passed here about a month ago. And so I had a good talk with my students explaining to them everything with that. And it's always just been something that I've always loved. And for some reason, when I went to college, I decided to go into psychology. So I did that. And I think it was because I never felt I was that good at math. You know, I could do the math, but it was a lot of work. And I was too lazy and didn't want to do that. So <laughs> <laughs> so I went into, went into psych. And then eventually, over time, I became a teacher. And, you know, we can get into a little bit later if you want to ask how I got into what I'm teaching now. But I'm always on the hunt for what is NASA doing now? What's the European Space Agency doing? What kind of cool stuff is going on in space? You know, Star Trek helps with that, too, having watched that as a kid, you know. In 2012, Steve received the Teacher of the Year Award for his work as a math and science teacher at Abbots Hill Elementary School, according to his LinkedIn page. I'm curious, as somebody who really didn't care too much for math, going Mm -hmm. from there to being a teacher who got Teacher of the Year in STEAM, Mm -hmm. how do you make that leap and get kids that maybe don't like math that much either excited about math and science? Oh, my goodness. Well, I will say that my wife, we met in college, she was a math major. 
And so she was able to help me out with a lot of that math. But one thing that really helped with that was seeing the more I got into science and working with science, you need the math in order to do the science. You know, I, I give my wife a hard time that math doesn't have a reason to exist except for science. If it wasn't for science, <laughs> there would be no need to do all these numbers and to have all these formulas and do all this stuff. So we like to have a little back and forth about that. But it's all about finding your passion. And what are you interested in? What really drives you and excites you? And then you just start kind of consuming, okay, what do I need to do to be successful in that? And, you know, learning the math is all part of that and learning how to do it. And also understanding that I can't do any of it myself, find people who do know a lot about it and just bug them, ask lots of questions. <laughs> Don't be afraid because <laughs> As you'll find out, as you're I'm sure, figuring out already talking with me, you find somebody who's interested in something and they will talk a lot. <laughs> Which is always a great thing because they'll talk a lot about things I don't necessarily know that much about, like science. Yeah. I was a kid who didn't pay much attention in science. And now look. <laughs> hey, how, here you are with the podcast and everything. Exactly. How did you use your creativity getting into teaching and maybe having to intrigue kids who were like me that would daydream through science and say, this relates to your world. What was your best creative challenge? Oh, you know, besides trying to prove to administration that what you were doing was going to work, besides that is you first have to get to know the students and see what they're interested in. And then I do a lot of research on my own to figure out, okay, I know what my students are into. How does what you know NASA does or what anything's going on in science, not just have to be NASA, but anything going on in science, how does that affect them? And then how can they apply that to what they do all the time? So, you know, it's really getting the kids to kind of bite at the bait you put in front of them. Find what they're interested in and then use that in the classroom. And that's really the that's really the tough part. I actually started this class. Uh, my principal asked me to start this class probably about four or five years ago. So this is a class unlike a lot that are being taught out there. I've been given a lot of free reign. But the reason he wanted me to start this was he really wanted to reach those students that didn't care about science. It's really a science enrichment class. And so he said, you know, do stuff like, you know, see how a football flies. Why is a football shaped the way it is? You know, what does that work? Why does a golf ball have dimples? So he was, you know, trying to reach students that are maybe more sports oriented, you know, to help improve what they're doing in sciences and to show them, you know, different possible career choices that they might not otherwise be exposed to. And the big thing that I try to teach in all my classes is that it's okay to fail. That's great to hear for education, especially because I yes. remember our school days and it was not necessarily okay to get a failing grade. That's exactly right. Well, now the students all look at me like oh, a failing grade. I'm like, okay, don't worry about the grade. Give it a try and be okay with being wrong because that's when you're going to learn something. You come to school to learn something. We don't assume you already know it. And if it was easy, then why are you bothering to come? Why are you wasting your time and my time by coming to school? If it was easy, it should be hard. It should be difficult. And if you try and fail, that's when you're going to learn, okay, what do I need to change next time? And you make improvements. 
which engineers do all the time. Scientists do it all the time. You know, with the, the big quote from Edison about inventing the light bulb, you know, I worked over a thousand times to invent the light bulb. Well, I didn't fail a thousand times. I just found a thousand ways that didn't work. <laughs> so it's all about how, how do you look at it? You know, okay, this way doesn't work. Now let's try this. And I feel that students, a lot of times in this day and age, they don't have that. They don't have that freedom to be, okay, let me try something. Look, this totally didn't work out. What can I do next time? And that's, I told you that my class is kind of odd. I do have grades in my class, but it's it's a little bit different way that I grade uh, through a rubric system. But what I tell the students is, again, not to worry about the grade. I said, you can work on this project. We do a lot of engineering design challenges where they have to, I give them a challenge and I don't give them a list of materials. I don't give them step-by-step instructions of how to do it. It's a Here's some stuff maybe that we've got that you can try. If you think of something else, let me know. I'll try to get it for you. You have this amount of time, and you've got to make something that does this over here and go. And I tell them, I say, you know what? You're going to run out of time sometimes, and it's not going to be finished. That's okay. You're going to get finished with the project, and then you're going to show, you know, demonstrate it, and it's going to fall apart. That's okay. Can you show that you actually worked on it? Can you, you know, explain what were you thinking? You know, why did it fail? Can you tell me why it failed? You just ran out of time on the project or, you know, oh my goodness, you know, this thing tipped over. I should have had better weights and balances on it so that it fell evenly. Can you explain that and tell me what would you do next time if you had a little more time on it or you had other materials? What would you do? You do that? Boom. You got an A. You're fine. Wow. What are some of the coolest things that your students have engineered in this class? Oh, we've been doing, so I'm a NASA JPL Solar System Ambassador. It's a volunteer thing that uh, several teachers are involved with, but there are several lessons that we tie into what JPL does. One of my favorite ones is called Touchdown. And with Touchdown, we're working on, the students have to engineer a suspension system. So basically, you've got a landing craft. We tie this into, you know, the moon landing or recently Perseverance landing on Mars. You have to create a craft. You have to a suspension system that when you drop it will protect your astronauts and not let them fall out. And you just have a cup and your astronauts are two marshmallows. And so I let them have the cup, the two marshmallows, and then there's a little piece of cardboard that's kind of the base. But what they have to design is underneath that. And I tell them, you can't put anything over the top of it. You're not shoving stuff down inside the cup to keep the astronauts still because we're not testing a restraint system. We're testing suspension. So we get into a big discussion about what's a suspension system. What are some examples? You know, the bed, the chair you're sitting in. If you have a bicycle, there's suspension on that cars. And so they kind of get into that whole, you know, why is that important? Well, especially with my eighth graders, they're learning physical science and a lot of physics We talk about forces and how that absorbs that shock coming from the car when you're driving on the road and dissipates that force. And so then once they engineer it and they just have some various materials, then they put their astronauts in there and they have to drop it from a meter. And it's got to land and the marshmallows can't move inside there. They really struggle with this. And then it's amazing to see them all of a sudden one person hits on an idea and then someone else goes, Oh, I like that idea. Let me add this as well. 
And then you start seeing them sharing ideas, which is really how the best engineering happens is when they are, you know, ideas bouncing back and forth, even though they're working on their own individual project. And I'm totally okay with that because again, they're learning. They're seeing something going, oh, that's how the world works. I mean, you work with a team, you're working on something and you find out how did somebody else do it? I mean, YouTube videos on how to, you know, change an alternator on a car are a great example of that. You look and see how does somebody do this? Okay, now let me adjust that for what I'm doing. So that's one of my favorites that the students have done with engineering. And of course, right now, I have my seventh graders working on engineering a new experiment with some seeds. So we're doing an experiment along with NASA and the Fairchild Tropical Botanical Garden in Miami, where we're growing bok choy. And we're using a similar system to what is on the space station right now with veggie. And we're testing the blue wavelengths of light. So it has a certain wavelength of light. See how that goes. And then there are other schools that are doing, you know, red, green, white, et cetera. So they're all the different. We're, we're just one experimental group. Well, I've got a bunch of seeds left over. And so I was asking the students today and I told them this is what we're going to start doing this week is I want them to come up. What's our, what are we going to do? I said, we've got. So I only teach a nine-week class. We've got two and a half weeks left in this quarter currently. I said, guys, I don't have a plan for this next two and a half weeks. What are we going to do? I said, I've got these extra bok choy seeds. I think we should do some kind of experiment with that. But you guys tell me what you want to do. So they are currently engineering the idea for what they want to do. They're going to do their ideas. We're going to kind of vote on what we're going to do. And I told them, I said, guys, I'm not going to tell you, okay, here's our procedure. Here's how we're going to set it up. I might give you some ideas if you ask for help, but this is yours. You go for it. Do you need grow lights that need to do it? Do you need to come up with some kind of watering system? Because watering plants on the space station is totally different than how we water plants here. So it's really kind of getting them to think, and I'm, I'm enjoying watching them come up with their different ideas. I have the distinct impression that you're going to have some future NASA scientists in your <laughs> classroom. This is going to be great. Well, and I tell them, I say, that's what my goal as a teacher, I would love, because they're part of the Mars generation. Somebody in that generation is going to be the first person on Mars. And I tell them, I would love to someday, as I'm old and doddering and sitting in my rocking chair at home, watching what's going on, that it's one of my students had something to do with somebody getting on Mars. That's my goal, my personal goal. How cool. Had you incorporated your passion for space from day one as a teacher? I did. So when I started, so I originally taught third grade and fifth grade when I started in public school system. I've taught three-year-olds. But when I started doing that, I taught math and science. And one of the first things I did, I found out that down in Warner Robins, Georgia, at the Air Museum down there, they did a NASA training session for teachers of some materials that they had. So I was able to ask my principal, hey, can I go check this out? And so I got to go, you know, professional development, you get all that credit for that. So I got to go to that, and that really opened up my eyes to what all was out there. And so I really started to, okay, you know, we're doing language arts activities. Let's make it about space, and let's make it about science. We're doing, you know, social studies. You're talking history and geography. Where are the different NASA centers? Why are they in those places, you know, Let's talk about, you know, obviously the space race was huge. I mean, the Cold War and, you know, and then talking about, you know, Georgia history. Okay, what was Georgia's role? What are some things that were developed here? 
So yeah, I've always tried to incorporate it. And when I started teaching in middle school, so I went from elementary to middle school and I spent about two years teaching eighth grade physical science. And I mean, physics, I mean, that's all about rocket launches. That's how we put things into space. That's so it naturally lends itself to what I'm teaching. And I just love doing that. And my principal, and I really have to say, I'm blessed to have a principal who not only did he want to really reach those students that don't really get science or don't really care about science, but he saw something in me that he's like, hey, this guy really enjoys teaching science and he really enjoys doing some different things in the classroom. I think he would be great to lead this new class. So yeah, I've, I mean, you have to, as a teacher, you kind of have to be, you know, you've got to teach these students this particular content. You know, let's say, you know, for our state, we've got our Georgia State standards. You've got to teach them this content. Well, if I'm going to be teaching all day, I want to make it interesting to me. So if I can make it interesting to me and talk about how it relates to things I'm interested in, especially in the elementary grades, students really kind of latch on to that of, oh, Mr. Jones is really... He was telling us about this. And and I always get emails from parents saying, hey, my kid came home talking about all this stuff. We had no idea. You know, we got online and found all this stuff, which is awesome. And then in middle school, you can do a little bit more with them with the experimental part where they can actually start working with several different materials that you might have. Something that I had not heard of. It says here that, yeah, and you'll see me cribbing, so I get the exact name right, but Magnitude Absolutely. IO, Principal Investigator okay. with Magnitude IO. I had not heard of that resource before, and I wish you'd tell me about it. Oh, I'd love to. In fact, I'm wearing our shirt that for our flight uh, just launched on last Saturday. So Magnitude.io is a company out of California, and their goal is to try to get students around the world interested in science and get them doing actual real science and to be doing it in relation with the International Space Station. So they are affiliated with CASES, which is the National Laboratory on the ISS. And I first heard about them. There's a conference that I go to every year in Houston at Johnson Space Center at Space Center Houston called the Space Exploration Educators Conference. And so there's always different companies there, you know, vendors and stuff for teachers to look at. And I'd seen this one a couple of times while I was there, but I was like, you know, it was a little pricey and I didn't think I could really do it in my class. So I never really thought much about it. And then two years ago, the International Space Station Research and Development Conference here in Atlanta. And I have another gentleman that I met through SEEK who developed something called the ISS Above, which let me grab it here real quick. This is a really cool little instrument that allows you to stream information. You get a live feed. It's this little box, little Raspberry Pi box, and it's got an HDMI port. So you just hook it up to a TV and then hook it up to the internet, and it'll stream live feed from the outside of the space station. There's cameras on the space station. So as it's going across the daytime side of Earth, you get a picture. When it's on the night side of Earth, there's all these different infographics on there. There's, you know, all the information when's the next visible pass because you can see it at night. So this gentleman, Liam Kennedy, is who developed this. And so I knew him because I bought one of these for my classroom and he and I got to be friends. And so he was going to be at that conference here in in town. And so I contacted him and said, hey, let's get together. And so I met him at the conference. Well, sitting right beside him was 
Ted Tagami and Michael Wilkinson from Magnitude.io. Ted is the CEO and Michael is the director of education. And they all know each other. They all kind of work together. And so I really got to find out more. And that was Exolab 6. So that was two launches ago. And they were just launching bacteria to the space station. And then so I found out more about how this worked in the classroom. And the way this works, and I've got one right set up here behind me, right here. The way this works is they have an experiment that gets launched to the space station. And the astronauts don't have to do a whole lot with it. They basically get it kind of set up and plugged in, and then they just leave it alone until it's done. Well, all that data is sent back to Magnitude, and they've got a web site where all that information is put out there. So in my class, what I do, which I did this with my seventh graders because they do a lot of biology, is basically the field of science that they are most interested in. And they were trying to see, can this rhizobium bacteria grow in a microgravity environment? Because this is a very important bacteria for us here on Earth that I'll explain in a little bit. So as this bacteria grows, students in the class are able to do observations of this growth. We talk about, you know, what it is, why it's important, and how we're putting it together. And they make observations. But not only can they see this, they can log online and see a side-by-side, because this takes a picture every hour of the bacteria on the station and the bacteria in our classroom. And they get data such as, you know, how much light there is so we can keep track of the light. There's a CO2 sensor to see how much carbon dioxide. There's a humidity sensor, temperature sensor. So you can monitor what, you know, you want to try to control for as many variables in experiment as you can. And we're testing the microgravity environment. So we want to make sure that there's none of that other stuff that might be causing problems in that. So this sounded really cool. And I was like, oh, this would be really neat to do. So I came back from that conference. It was the beginning of the school year. And I talked to my principal and said, you know, I'd really like to try this. I really think this would be something that would be interesting for our students to do. And I could do it with my seventh graders. And I explained it to him. He said, sure. Yeah, let's do it. And I was kind of surprised because I didn't think it would be that easy just to you know, ask him. But he was like, yeah, sure. Whatever you need. And so we worked through it. And. I ran through it several times. I got to know the guys at Magnitude a little bit better. That following February, I went. I was getting ready to go back to Seek because it's February. And I'd contacted one of the guys I was having trouble with the website. And so I'd contacted Tony, who's the chief operating officer over there, and he's also in charge of making sure everything works. I contacted him, and he said, hey, are you on board with us for Exolab 7, which was launching later in February that year? I said, well, no, I hadn't heard anything about that. He said, well, you've know, you, you got to get on board with us. And so I thought, well, okay. So during planning, I walked down to my principal's office. I said, hey, they're doing a follow-up experiment. So it's taking that bacteria we experimented with in Exolab 6 and now matching that up with a plant. It was cowpeas at that time. They were using legume to see how they interact because there's a symbiotic relationship between legumes and rhizobium bacteria. So... Let me back up for a second. Plants need nitrogen to live. You buy fertilizer for plants. There's phosphates, nitrates. That's one of the big things that's listed on there. So the only way that occurs here on Earth is through lightning strikes. So whenever there's lightning strikes, that's good because it's taking the nitrogen out of the air, putting it into the soil as nitrates because plants can't absorb nitrogen from the air like we do. And the other way is through this bacteria, rhizobium. What it does is it absorbs that nitrogen, and as it's kind of feeding along with the plants, it 
the excretions are nitrates, and that's how the nitrates get into the soil. So legumes become a host plant for bacteria, and they form nodules. So little bumps on the roots, and that's where these colony of bacteria live and grow, and that's what they're doing. So we're trying to see, okay, if we want to be able to grow plants on the moon, grow plants on Mars, you know, we can't send up nitrates because, as we learned in Beirut earlier this year, nitrates are very explosive. And, you know, you don't want to send a bunch of nitrates on top of a rocket. I mean, that's just, that's not a good plan to do. So would it be easier to send up a bunch of legumes along with this bacteria and create a cover crop? And then once that cover crop has outlived its usefulness and then, you know, becomes soil, now you've got something you can start planting other plants in. So that's what we're looking at is the nodule. So Exolab 7, they said, hey, you want to get involved with that? I said, sure. So I went out and talked to my principal, said, look, they're about to launch another one. I think this would be a great opportunity for our students who participated in that previous experiment to do a follow-up of now Everything you did in that one now is leading to this. Sure, he said, let's do it. Again, totally surprised. That's when I say I've been blessed by having an administrator who believes in science and believes in what I'm trying to do and was willing to back me up on whatever I try. Because uh, he's always told us, I'd rather you try something and it totally bomb in your classroom than get stuck in a rut and doing the same thing all the time and not doing any innovating in the classroom and trying different ways to reach students. So I've taken that to heart and I push him a little bit sometimes with some of the stuff I do. So we got involved with Exolab 7 that way and had a good time with that. We did a launch party. I hadn't been involved with that. And they contacted me, Michael Wilkinson, I was telling you about the director of education and asked if I wanted to come on board as a co-principal investigator. They were putting together a team for follow-up experiments and they really wanted several people that they thought would be good to really help develop curriculum and to be actual investigators on this science. Cause this, you know, we're actually doing real science. We don't know what's going to happen. And so I said, sure. And then COVID hit and that changed a lot of things. But what was awesome was working with magnitude. We had to do that quick, you know, try to figure out how do we do things online all of a sudden? Well, I told you this runs through a web interface it was already set and ready to go. It was sitting there waiting for us. So we did a thing. There were some issues with the launch. Our launch got delayed and that caused some delay in our plant growth. And so there were some issues with that Exolab 7 with what got on station as out of our control. And so they said, well, let's see if we can do it again, but maybe we try something besides Calpies. And so we were all tasked, all the PIs with finding a legume. And then I got my students at the end of the year last year, their job was to do the research on this legume. So ours was lentils. So lentils was my legume of choice. And I chose that one because I had a lot of students from India and lentils are a very large part of their diet. So I thought, okay, let's try to help them. You know, hey, you know, we eat this stuff all the time. How does it grow? What does it need? You know, that sort of thing. So we did what was called the Leguminot Challenge. And so over that spring and into the summer, I would mail seeds to my students in my classroom and they would try different ways of growing them. And we would keep track of how did these plants grow and what did they do? And then we ended up getting all together and we chose the best one. And what we just sent up is red clover, which is why we got the little clover logo on our mission patch. 
And so red clover was the winner because it's a very small seed. It's actually, you can eat it. It's a microgreen, so you can eat it, but it also is a, it grows fast and it nodulates relatively easily here on earth. So that's what we decided to do. And so Magnitude works with a company called Space Tango, who puts together their stuff that actually goes onto the station. And so with Magnitude and Space Tango, we got our experiment launched here last Saturday. And it just got attached to the station today. And we're looking at possibly Wednesday, it should be up and running. So my job gets busy starting tomorrow. I start getting our experiments set up in the classroom for them. But Magnitude's doing some really cool stuff and they've got some really good ideas. And I just, you know, can't say enough about, again, like I said, it saved my bacon during COVID when it first kicked off. And it's like when everybody else is scrambling, how are we going to teach this online? I'm thinking, well, I've already got it. Let's go. I'm ready to do it. So there will be a lot of teachers who are remote teaching right now who may not have heard of this before, who might like to know a little bit more about these resources. What would be their first steps in finding out more? So first step would go to magnitude.io. That's the website. They also have a YouTube channel and we've got lots of introductory videos. In fact, we did a flight readiness review last Friday, which included a lot of our students. And we had students from all across the United States. We had Canada, Japan, Romania, South Africa. So all these students in Georgia, obviously, being on there and kind of talking about what we were doing. But the YouTube channel for Magnitude.io and their website is the best place to find out what they're doing. Magnitude.io. I'm really curious how the Calpees did, though. So the Calpees, they did pretty well. The thing that we found out was there was a delay because of weather for one week for our experiment to be launched, for the launch of our experiment. And so what happened was our plants were inside this rocket for a week. Well, they'd already started germinating. We'd gotten them started germinating before we loaded them on the rocket. But it's not temperature controlled, climate controlled, anything like that. And it couldn't be offloaded or anything. So it sat there for the week in the dark, in the cold February Virginia weather. And so by the time it got to the station, the plants, you know, one of the words I teach my kids is phototropism. That's where a plant looks for light. That's why it grows upward. It's trying to get the light. And then there's gravitropism. That's how gravity, how does it know, how will the plant know which way is up and which way is down? That's the way that gravity is affecting it. And so that phototropism, they're trying to find the light. So they get really stressed and they start growing really long. So by the time our experiment got on station and plugged in, when we started getting those first images back, the plants had grown really long. They were white and they were up beyond the camera from what you could really see. And they did not survive very long. They ended up there was too stressed and they ended up dying on us. So they didn't do very well. So that was what kind of prompted the Leguminot challenge was, okay, is there a, you know, again, failure is always an option. Is there another legume that might be able to handle that stress better than the cowpeas did? And so that was a lot of the, the experiments that myself and my other co-PIs did was we put all these seeds through all these different types of stressors just to see, okay, if this happens again, because that's something, again, it's out of our control is there still a chance we can get some relevant science out of this as it goes? And so that was another reason Clover was also picked. And we also changed the way that we set it up. We are not pre-germinating the seeds. They're going to be germinated once they get on station. And so there was a new way to do that that was developed 
to get that working. So it was pretty neat. It was neat to be involved with that. It's really neat that the failure led to your success in choosing the red clover. I like that a lot. Yes. How did you start to choose lentils and wind up with red clover? So I had lentils. Someone else had red clover and somebody else was doing soybeans and all these different ones. And one of the big things, at least to me, and actually this was a bad point to me, but I understood it. The size of the seed for clover is very, very tiny, which means you can send a lot of it. So let's say if we're going to be sending it to the moon or Mars, you can send a lot of it. And it's also used here, you know, on earth as a cover crop to prepare for other types of plants. One thing I found out about with lentils is when you're growing them, they get very leggy, which means they grow really tall before you ever start seeing anything out of them. Well, the space that we had to send up on the station, I mean, it's not a very large, it's this box right here. You just don't have the room. And so lentils really didn't lend themselves to this particular experiment. But clover, I mean, I've got clover growing in there right now. Clover did fantastic with that. So, And then we started, you know, with the idea of it being a cover crop for future crops and you're creating, because there is no soil on Mars. There's no soil on the moon. In order to be soil, there's got to be an organic component to it. So it's just crushed up rock and dirt is basically all it is. So without that organic component in there. So we're going to use clover as our base to then start growing other stuff. You say that you're going to be busy next week. This is probably going to go up next week. You'll be in the middle of everything. What happens now? What's next for you? So what happens now is I'm trying to get my students to bring in water bottles. So that's been the big thing is, you know, just empty water bottles. And they're going to use that to grow their own seeds. But the materials that we grow, we don't grow it in soil. It's in something called auger, which is a gelatin type substance. So there's some prep work that goes in getting that ready. I've got to do sterilization of all the equipment because we want to make sure there's no you know other molds or anything else that gets into our experiment here in the classroom. And I like to do that with the kids so that they see this is how we do this. And the reason why is because I don't want to introduce any other variables. So again, I'm trying to model for them science and what we're doing and why we're doing it. So I'll be getting all of that set up and then I've got to you know get the seeds imbibed and then the students will do their own putting their stuff in there, but I've got to kind of monitor that. So that's what's coming up for me starting tomorrow is I'm starting getting the auger together, getting their bottles prepared so that they can have those ready to go and just getting them ready for having seeds and going. So that's, that's it. It's all this pre-prep work. And then once the experiment's going, students are on their own. They got to do their own observations. I've got, we've got a whole curriculum set up through magnitude that the students can go through and keep track of their data. And then they're going to turn in that data to me, which I'm then going to turn over to the rest of the team. And we're going to use that to you know, figure out where do we go next? Did our experiment actually work? And that's one way I try to introduce this to students is I always ask, how many of you have done a science experiment before? Oh, you see all these hands go up. And I tell them, guys, I'm going to say that you've never done a science experiment. I'm going to say that you have done an investigation and a demonstration. Because a lot of times in science class, this is not knocking on science class because you need to have this. You're not really doing an experiment because we as the teachers, we know what's going to happen. And we give you a bunch of materials. We give you a set of procedures. You follow these directions, this, 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 and this. Do an observation and then 
you write a thing telling me what happened in there. And then that's what you get your grade on. Well, you're just, you're baking a cake when you're doing that. I mean, if I gave you a box of cake mix and you follow the directions on the back and you use the ingredients that I told you to use, you should at the end have a cake. Well, the science that we're doing, we have no idea what's going to happen at the end. And that's the exciting thing. And that's why I tried to tell them that's a real experiment. It's not something that you can easily just Google real quick and say, do root nodules form on plants in space and try to find it because nobody studied that before. So, exciting stuff. Yeah. I love that. Let's give some links where people can see what you and your class are doing or anywhere they can follow you on social media. Anything you'd like people to know about what your class is sure. doing currently. Sure. Currently, I'm very active on Twitter. And my handle is at Mr. Jones HMS. So Mr. Jones and HMS is the school I teach at, Hopewell Middle School. On there, I share information all the time on what my students are doing. I invite my students to actually write some of the tweets so that we can send them out. In fact, I told you about the experiment that I'm doing with my seventh graders with bok choy and the the veggie system with Kennedy Space Center and the Fairchild botanical garden they specifically want us to do a lot of information about that so that's the best place to keep track of me and find out what i'm doing other than that i mean hopewell middle school we try to post a lot of stuff on there that's a really long website address so i'll let people check that out magnitude.io is the website for magnitude for what they do and i also want you know any teachers that might be listening or parents that are at home that might be listening to this NASA and the Jet Propulsion Laboratory at Caltech have a ton of educational activities for students to do. Again, part of my role as a volunteer solar system ambassador is to talk about a lot of this stuff. So I'm going to give a plug here. But if you go to nasa.gov slash STEM, you'll be able to see there are at-home activities that you can do. And then there are activities that, as teachers, you can set up to do with your students. And there's a whole section on citizen science that I absolutely love getting my students involved in. And citizen science is just a way for ordinary people like us to get involved with the science that professionals are doing out there. And there's they've got links to that on NASA.gov. And there's an app that I use called the Globe app that NASA's developed. And I just put that on my phone and you go outside and it's a cloud observer app. And so they want you to take pictures of clouds in your area. And then you answer a couple questions and you submit it. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to see, okay, the satellite imagery we're getting from space of the ground. What are people on the ground seeing looking the other way in different parts to better be able to calibrate and get their satellites to help with weather prediction is what that is. So again, It's called the Globe app. It's a really good one. They've got some other things on there. There's a mosquito mapper and all sorts of stuff. So citizen science, again, is an easy, cheap, free way to get your students involved in doing real science. There's a website called Zooniverse. That's Z-O-O and then N-I-V-E-R-S-E, Zooniverse. And Zooniverse, it actually has a lot of citizen science activities, but it's broken up into content area. So if you're interested in art, literature, history, space science, biology, you can look at individual things and see what scientists are doing because scientists aren't just doing space stuff. You have scientists that are doing history. Archaeologists are scientists. In fact, 
NASA uses archaeologists as we're looking at stuff on Mars because the stuff we see here on Earth, okay, how does that apply to how these rovers are finding things on on Earth? What are the techniques we need to use to be careful with that? So those are the big websites that I recommend. Fantastic resources. I think I'm going to be checking out Zooniverse myself. Oh, yeah. That sounds amazing. Zooniverse is a lot of fun. Steve, if people could only get one thing from you and your work about innovation, creativity, and making a difference, what would you want them to take away from you as a teacher, as a dad, as a total space enthusiast? Don't be afraid to fail. You know, I always tell you know, my own children, you know, do your best. If you can tell me you did your best, then that's okay. And so that's the big thing. I see students every day that are afraid to try anything new. They're afraid to have their own thoughts. They just want to say, okay, let me tell you what the right answer is. And that's all they want. They don't want to put any other effort into it because they're afraid to be wrong. And I want to say, I hope people come away from here thinking it's okay to be wrong because when we're wrong, that's when we learn something. If we're right all the time, how boring would that be? Steve, thank you for your time today. You're quite welcome. You and I have been listening to STEAM teacher and Magnitude IO principal investigator Steve Jones. Find out more about what Steve and his students at Hopewell Middle School are doing by following him on Twitter at Mr. Jones HMS. That's Mr. Jones HMS as in Hopewell Middle School. Meanwhile, here are some links to the resources Steve mentioned. You can find out more about Magnitude IO's project-based learning programs at magnitude.io. That's magnitude.io. And get a look at their YouTube channel. Also, for educational resources from NASA, take a look at nasa.gov forward slash STEM. That's nasa.gov forward slash STEM. And if you'd like to know more about the citizen science website Zooniverse, which includes information for us humanities folks, their website is Zooniverse, Z-O-O-N-I-V-E-R-S-E, like zoo and universe, zooniverse.org. And that concludes this edition of Over Coffee. Thank you for listening. Listen to additional Over Coffee podcasts at twomavericks.com. That's two, T-W-O, Mavericks, M-A-V-E-R-I-X, twomavericks.com. And you can contact us at twomavericks at gmail.com. The music you're hearing is royalty-free production music provided by Pond5 at pond5.com. I'm Dot Cannon. Here's wishing you a cappuccino day.